Hello, welcome. My name is Ali A. Alomi, and I am the host of Head on History. Welcome to this special episode of Head on History. We are actually on a break. Season 3 was completed and concluded a few weeks back. But in light of Muharram and Ashura, I thought that I would take this opportunity to come in and do a Head on History special. A special shout out to Alisa Dot, a fellow historian, uh, who actually gave me this idea. I've been thinking about this for a while, uh, but a, a good poke from him, good encouragement from him, uh, convinced me that I should do this episode. Um, for those of you that are listening to the sound of my voice, right now as I, as I record, um, on the 19th of September is Ashura. It's the 10th day of Muharram. And it is a particularly poignant and spiritual moment um, of commemoration. And so I wanted to take this moment to do a kind of short episode to dispel some of the myths, to talk about what Muharram and Ashura are and what do they mean for Muslims uh, more broadly. And in particular, I think this episode... aims to kind of correct some of the hegemonic narratives about Islam. Because as a scholar of Islam, as a historian of Islam, one of the things that I noticed as as I was studying that we present Islamic history from one perspective, and it tends to be the dominant mainstream Sunni perspective. And there isn't a lot of conversation about uh, Shia historiography unless you go in a completely separate direction. The reality is that early Islamic history is Sunni and Shia, and that often gets forgotten. And this has consequences in our contemporary moment, in which Sunnis uh, tend to marginalize Shias in public Muslim spaces. Uh, while certainly the same, the reverse is true in, say, Iran, where Sunnis often face quite a bit of persecution, on a lot of the Muslim world, uh, there is tension between Sunni and Shia as a result of the geopolitics. As a result of Saudi Arabia and Iran, you find, and before Saudi Arabia and Iran, between the Ottoman Empire and the Safavid Empire, you see these identities uh, deployed as a means of creating sectarian tension. The reality is that this history, however, is far more more unified. And this history reveals shared collective memory. And I want to highlight that while also recognizing that this particular uh, this particular moment is a, a moment in which she is in particular feel marginalized. I mean, I know plenty of my Shia colleagues who uh, talk about the fact that on college campuses, MSAs will schedule parties at this time, not recognizing that that for their fellow Muslims, Shia Muslims, that this is a moment of mourning and commemoration. So I think this podcast aims to address the kind of conscious ignorance, marginalization, and and um, as well as the unconscious, subliminal, subtle ways in which we create hegemonies that that exclude. Uh, whole denominations like uh, Shia Muslims in the way we talk about Islam. So, for example, we never talked about Muharram or Ashura when I was taking classes. It wasn't until my own research started at the university's level asking for it, and then graduate studies when I really started to look into this historiography. So that's what I'm going to present today, a little bit of uh, you know a history here to talk about both what Muharram and Ashura are and what they represent and how they've been uh, conceived of historically. While both Sunni and Shia honor and commemorate during this time, Ashura is the focal point of communal identity for Shia Muslims. 
So let's join together and let's dispel some myths and correct a lot of this ignorance. Uh, to, to first understand this historical memory, we have, we're, we're going to do is divide up this podcast. First, we're going to talk about the actual history itself. What happened? What is Muharram and Ashura commemorating? And then two, we're going to talk about the actual practices. Okay, These holy days, that is Muharram, which is actually the first month of the Islamic calendar. It's an Islamic month. The first 10 days of Muharram are viewed as days of commemoration, culminating with the 10th day known as Ashura. And they recall and mourn the Battle of Karbala. This goes back to the first civil war, the first fitna. The division of the early community is, was not theological. It was not about theological differences in the same way that, say, Protestantism and Catholicism are. Both of them are oppositional in some theology, theological aspect. In the early developments of the community, we're talking about the first couple hundred years after the death of Muhammad, what we call Sunnism and Shiism, what are really proto-communities, nascent communities, that differ on what leadership for the community looks like. To understand this picture more, you can check out my first season on this topic, on the history of Sunnism and the history of Shiism and the development of orthodoxy and theology and Islam. The reality is that when we talk about Sunni and Shia as denominations, they're not separate sects. They are theologically very similar. What they differ on is the image of the community. And this goes back to the original division. What eventually became Sunnism argued for one image of leadership and that was the caliphate that is the successors of muhammad being either elected or chosen from amongst the people the shiatul ali which eventually becomes shiism over a course of several hundred years argued that leadership passed down in the family of muhammad the fourth khalif ali the fourth khalif of the rashidun faced outright rebellion by the Banu Umayyah, who was led by Muawiyah. This is the disagreement on leadership coming to a head. The Shiotul Ali had finally achieved some measure of success in that they, Ali was elected Khalif. But the way he was elected caused issues for the Banu Umayyah. Ali was elected in light of Uthman, the third Khalif's assassination. And Uthman was of the Banu Umayyah. So the Banu Umayyah accuse Ali of either collaborating, conspiring, or con covering for the assassins. In reality, what the real tension was that when Ali took charge, he reverted back to the kind of simplistic rule of Muhammad. He removed the sort of nepotistic positions that Uthman had enabled. Uthman had appointed a bunch of his family members to high positions. So the Banu Umayyah had consolidated power. They were in Egypt and they were very much in Syria. And Ali didn't believe in this. Ali believed in a traditional meritocracy just like Muhammad did. So when he came in, he removed some of those governors. And that's the reason why the Banu Umayyah emerge as opponents of Ali. In addition to the fact that, oh, their, their relative was assassinated, it's really about they were their loss of power and privilege. Ali wanted to return the caliphate to a very simple manifestation. In fact, Ali was quite famous for he would take in the zakat uh, uh, alms, the uh, tax paid by all Muslims, the alms tax, and he would collect it all and then dis 
distributed all to the orphans and the poor, taking a broom and then sweeping the treasury floor. A symbolic act of saying, look, I've kept none of this for myself. I live a simple, humble life. All this money goes back to orphans and widows and children. So he really wanted to institute the kind of re-emergence, really kind of return things to this pious governance of of Muhammad. Uh, But he faced open rebellion. And this open rebellion... Uh, was finally concluded with arbitration. Muawiyah, the leader of the Banu Umayyah, and Ali reached some type of agreement. But Ali was killed by a group of extremists within his own faction, within the Shiatul Ali. The Kharajites, angry that Ali arbitrated, therefore violated their, their kind of strict notions of justice, they kill and assassinate Ali. As a result, Muawiyah emerges as Khalif. Now, Muawiyah signs another contract with Hassan, the son of Ali. And the argument is that this contract was to ensure the stability of the community, to avoid another fitna, another conflict. Hassan's agreed to this arbitration, agreed to the contract. Muawiyah, however, breaks the contract. When he dies, he appoints his son Yazid as Khalif. By appointing Yazid, he breaks his contract with Hassan. The idea was that Hassan would recognize Muawiyah, and Muawiyah would allow to be Khalif. But then this would return back to the bayt, uh, you know, to the family Ahl al Bayt, the family of the house. Uh, or the people of the house, that is, the family of Muhammad. Ahli al-Bayt refers to Muhammad's family. But that's not what happens. This, instead, Muawiyah passes it on to Yazid. Now, this is a, a big issue. Two big things happen here. First, this is a violation of the contract, a violation of his agreement. And Islam principles are very clear on holding up your oaths and holding up your contracts. The second component is this. This is the first time the caliphate had been made dynastic and dynastic outside of the family of the prophet. It went from the Banu Umayyah to Banu Umayyah. This is the emergence of an Umayyad dynasty. This was a problem. Most of the people who had accepted the Umayyad, the Muawiyah as Khalif, still were under the impression that the caliphate was a sort of representative custodial government. That is, that the caliph was meant to be the custodian of the community. They had not expected a king. They did not want a monarchy. But a significant number of the Muslims, those that eventually become the Sunni Muslims, were quietest, meaning that they reserved their judgment on the Umayyad caliphs and didn't want to cause violence because they had already experienced one violence or one civil war and strife between Ali and Muawiyah. To avoid it, they chose to be quietists. They put Jamaat above everything else. And that's that eventually becomes the Sunni position. And that is, uh, it takes a hundred, a couple hundred years before it fully develops, but that's the original principle of it, putting Jamaat over fitna. But the Shiatul Ali, on the other hand, are betrayed. They've been betrayed by Yazid, and Yazid knows this. So what does Yazid do is he takes immediate action against Hussein, Ali's other son, and Muhammad's grandson. He tries to force Hussein to give the oath of allegiance. The Khalif can only be recognized by bayat, that is an actual oath that is given. I give loyalty to this person. So not only is the contract broken, but now he's trying to strong arm the grandson of Muhammad. 
Yazid then goes on to do all sorts of political things. He removes the governor of the region. He takes control of the pilgrimage route, boxing in Hussein with physical coercive threat, even going so far as to say that if we can catch him on the pilgrimage roads, we'll kill him. Hussein at the time was at Kaaba, was at Mecca, making Umrah. And he decided that he was going to make his way back to Kufa. And his family and everyone's like, don't do it, man. Or if you're going to do it, leave your family behind. Because these guys are breaking their traditions. They're they're violating all the principles that are Islamic. And Hussein very famously said, death is a certainty for mankind, just like the trace of necklace on the neck of young girls. And I am enamored by my ancestors like eagerness of Jacob to Joseph. Everyone who is going to devote his blood for our sake and is prepared to meet Allah must depart with us. So he feels very strongly about leaving Kaaba because these people had broken their oaths, broken their violations, had done all sorts of things unjustly, and to go back to Kufa. Unfortunately, he's intercepted. He's intercepted by 1,000 men on October 2nd, 680 CE. This is during the month of Muharram. And he's interrupted by this army that has come out of Syria. Now this is significant because another component of the division between the Sunni and the Shia is tribal. Contrary to the idea that, oh, these are two different sects, more likely what we see is that there are two kind of big tribal confederations that pre-exist Islam. There's the tribal confederation in Iraq, which Arabs were often the client states of the Sasanians, and the tribal confederations in Syria with the Arab tribes, uh, part of the alliance with the Byzantines. These two tribes acted as proxies for their empires, the Sasanians and the Byzantines, and carried out a series of conflicts with one another. The coming of Muhammad and the emergence of Islam unifies this by removing tribal allegiance and superposing the Ummah, a super tribe. It tries to eliminate it. And for a brief time, there is one unified community of believers. With the death of Muhammad and the subsequent political divisions, these old rivalries come back to the surface. So here we have it very clearly with this interception at Kufa um, that you have a thousand men from Syria marching on a small contingent of people from uh, Iraq. So these two kind of tribal confederations are coming to a head. And what ends up happening is that Hussein makes several attempts to address this. He tries to arbitrate. He tries to he tries to resolve this to the best of his abilities, but he's unable to. The army that is being directed by Yazid, by the Ummah, the Banu Umayya, goes so far as to cut them off from water supplies. Now, this was something you were not supposed to do, um, but they did it anyways. They cut them off from water supplies. It kind of they tried to connect this to the Battle of Badr and Uhud, where there's a similar trying to claiming of an oasis. But they were trying to starve out Hussein. Eventually, they launch an attack. They're given the order to attack. And the order to attack results in a series of arrows just being thrown into the small encampment of Hussein. Very small. They're outnumbered. So what happens is Hussein's people march outside of the encampment and engage with the battle, with the armies of the Banu Umayyah, one by one, in an attempt to save the women and the children that were in the encampments because the arrows were indiscriminate. It doesn't end well. 
it does not end well. There was not uh, there was no, Hussein's troops were not that many. They were outnumbered. They were exhausted. They had just traveled a far distance, and on the tenth of Muharram, which becomes known as Ashura, uh, the army is destroyed. One by army, the army is destroyed, and this involves family members of Hussein himself. Hussein himself is reputed to have fought quite bravely, calling people to justice, saying, how could you be doing this? You are violating the principles of God. You are violating the principles of, of even good warfare, because there was, there's warfare was regulated in Islamic law. You couldn't just kill anybody. Yeah, there was regulations. He's eventually killed by Sinan ibn Abba Anas, or so we're left to believe. There's not a lot of clarity on who actually kills him. Um, but then what they do is they raid his encampment, and they loot it, and they take his family, uh, imprison him, and they cut off his head, and they send his head um, to Ibn Zaid in, in Kufa, who's a family member of uh, Hussein. And they take the rest of his family back to Damascus. This is kind of a massive tragedy in the Muslim world. Not just amongst the Shiatul Ali, but everyone is shocked by this. This was the grandson of Muhammad. This is the Ahli al-Bayt, the people of the house. And he was murdered, and murdered quite horrifically. When they finally get back, um, Ali's uh, family put up quite a bit of... Um, you know, of, uh, of resistance, if you will. His son, Ali, Ali ibn Hussein, gets up and gives this beautiful sermon that stirs people. His daughter, Zainab bint Ali, also uh, gets up and gives this amazing sermon that, that, that kind of is considered to be one of the top five sermons of, amongst all the followers of Muhammad. And it's really from this moment that we begin to see a commemoration of this moment, a mourning. Zaid bint Ali, uh, the sister of Ibn, I'm sorry, Zaid bint Ali was his sister, the sister of Hussein who, who gives the sermon. Zainab bint Ali is considered to be by most historians and most sources the first to begin the practice of mourning the death of Hussein. This act also leads to outright rebellion. Abdullah ibn Zubair rises up in Mecca to confront Yazidi. This is another fitna. And he seizes Mecca. And the Meccans join him because they are pissed. Oh my God, they killed the grandson of Muhammad. Now these are people who later we would attribute to being Sunni. Remember at this point Sunnism and Shiism don't actually exist. They're just really kind of perspectives that are still forming. But these are people who, so this is the fact that the people of Mecca rose up is indicative of how big of an impact this had to the broader Ummah. And from Zaid ibn Ali, the first real commemoration, like a large-scale procession commemoration that we see happens under the Buyids. The Buyids emerge in the 9th and 10th century as an autonomous dynasty that takes control in Baghdad. They are a Shia uh, dynasty that ends up um, really developing a powerful military rulership, and they make the Khalif in Baghdad into a kind of figurehead. figurehead. This is known as the Shia century. It's about 100 years of Buyid rule. This is the first time we have evidence of real uh, processions, widespread. Before that, we know that Z uh, Zainab bint Ali, the sister of Hussein, may have done some stuff. We know the family may have commemorated, and we certainly know that the memory was fresh and powerful in the community. But it's the Buyids that first institute a widespread 
procession. This is then picked up several hundred years later in the 15th century, 1501, under Shah Ismail. Shah Ismail of the Safavids establishes a Shia dynasty in modern-day Iran. The majority of the population, however, was Sunni, and in order to convert uh, the population to Shiism, which he wanted to do so that he could legitimize his rule in opposition to the Sunni Ottomans and the Uzbek Khanate uh, to the east. He had the Uzbek Sunnis to the east and the Ottomans to the west, and so Shiism uh, was a way of legitimizing his authority. He imported a series of uh, scholars, uh, the Mujtahids, uh, who eventually become the Ayatollahs. He also instituted what are known as the Tazia. These were operatic reenactments of the Battle of Karbala. Um, they are really iconically Persian. They draw from an actual older Sasanian tradition. Um, may have even have some connections to the Avestas. But they are quite beautiful and they're done communally. Um, they're done at villages. Some can be very elaborate and huge, big um, ordeals, quite beautiful and gorgeous. And they commemorate the Battle of Karbala. The taziyas and the importation of the, the scholars really allows a state-enforced conversion to begin in Iran. And eventually you have the population converting to Shiism. And the at the heart of this new kind of communal identity is Ashura and Muharram. That is the Battle of Karbala. It is a reminder of the oppression in the world and really produces a strong sense of social justice in the Shia community, a sense of resistance against tyranny and oppression. This, in the end, actually ends up biting the Safavid shahs in the ass because Shiism... He hopes that would legitimize his authority. And sure, the, the, originally the Mujtahids kind of do so. They give him authority and the Tazia helps to convert the population. And the Shia population accepts the Safavids for a while. But over, eventually, the religious scholarship becomes autonomous. And the religious scholarship ends up being a check against the excesses of the government. Keeping the Shahs from becoming outright oppressive and outright tyrannical. And goes, no. This is against Shia principles. It, it is the heart of why there was eventually a revolution against uh, the Shahs of Iran under the Pahlavi dynasty. Because Shia Islam, particularly as it is then reinterpreted in a modern context under Ali Shariati, who really brings in this kind of third, uh, the third worldism, the liberation theology, really, really imagines a sort of revolutionary quality to Shia Islam. But that strong sense of justice just that strong sense of revolution, that strong sense of resistance against tyranny is rooted in that commemoration of the Battle of Karbala. The Battle of Karbala is not, is not just a story of martyrdom. It's a story of a fight against oppression and tyranny. It's a stain in the Sunni minds. It's one of the reasons why Sunni scholars never really accept the Umayyads too well. Later Abbasids go out of their way to insult the Umayyads. They're not over because of what they did. And it's also a moment of communal identity for Shias. Now, Muharram and Ashura are practiced in a variety of ways. They're commemorated in a variety of ways. Sunnis also remember this, the, these moments, um, but they're more a sense of memory than it is mourning, whereas with Shias, Muslims, you find very clear uh, mourning. This is a, a very tragic event. There's one, the Taziyah, that is the play, the Majlis al-Taziyah. This is a play that is put on uh, to a very instructive, reliving. It's got a powerful 
for emotive, effective quality of really bringing a community together because the plays aren't done in the privacy of your own home. They're done communally. So it brings the community together. Pilgrimages are done. Processions uh, to Karbala are made to the tomb, the uh, Hussein shrine, uh, uh, Hussein ibn Ali shrine. Large processions. There's matam, which is uh, uh, public grieving that it will involve weeping and uh, crying. Then there's tatbir, which is self-flagellation. Now this is this is a very controversial one, and I want to take a moment to talk about this because this is over. This is overrepresented. A very small, small percentage of Shias in Iran and South Asia will do tatbir, that is self-flagellation as an act of mourning. It is actually forbidden by the ayatollahs. The ayatollahs go, don't self-flagellate. Most Shias don't do this. And yet you'll often see a Sunni polemicist pointing to, to tatbir as a way of kind of delegitimizing Muharram. Oh, that's Muharram, that's that thing where you guys beat yourselves. No, that's not what it is. Tatbir is a very small act done by a very small group of people. The main message is mourning, not uh, self-flagellation. So I, I wanted to really kind of emphasize that, that while, yes, historically tatbir existed, it is not the core of Muharram or Ashura. That's just false. And then there's Rauda Khani, that is the reciting of the Rauda. So this is all about memory, and this is what's quite powerful about it, because the memory creates continuity. The Shia community was largely marginalized through Islamic history. The Umayyads were a Sunni dynasty. They were defeated by the Abbasids in 750 CE with the Abbasid Revolution. And while the Abbasids promised that they would incorporate the Shias into their uh, dynasty and certainly made all sorts of promises, uh, they even relied on uh, Shia legitimization for their uh, claims, they didn't in the end. In the end, they still marginalized Shias. So m most of these practices were happening in private. But they became the core of identity by, by really creating a shared history. And this is really how history becomes identity forming, how we can use this. How we, and, then, you know, this is super important for understanding why history matters to this very day, why it shows up in political discourse, why people talk about uh, certain aspects of history. The shared past is identity forming. And we really see it within the Shia community at this particular moment. But again, I want to emphasize that for much of this history, this is collaborative. The Sunni population is also participating in a lot of these activities. Uh, quite famously, even until recently, on lived reality, if you would go to places like uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and these other re areas, you would have people who would set up... Um, these these uh, stands where they would give out water for people who were uh, making the pilgrimages. And you would have Sunnis who would participate in fasts and prayers and commemoration. But that gets forgotten, and it's deliberately forgotten as a result of the tensions between the Ottoman Empire and the Safavids and between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Saudi Arabia has done a great deal of damage to this kind of historical memory, and they've really gone out of their way to using polemic language to 
to decry Muharram and Ashura, and therefore kind of taken Sunnis and turned them against this particular moment, uh, against this particular type of commemoration, which I think is, is, is sad and really demonstrates a sort of ignorance of history here. But it is a holy day, and it is a holy day of remembrance, and the power of that remembrance to shape the identity of a community, and more than just shape the identity of that community, but become representative of the principles of that community, a community that believes in social justice, a community that believes in righteous government, a community that believes in upholding the prophetic tradition of Muhammad, all of that comes out of the kind of tragedy of the Battle of Karbala. This event that happened almost more than a thousand years ago still resonates for people today. It's why you will find people in 2018 who remember the Battle of Karbala and will bring tears to their eyes because it is a very real experience. Anyone who has ever been oppressed, anyone who has ever failed, faced tyranny, anyone who has faced injustice can resonate with the story of the Battle of Karbala. Anyways, I wanted to end it there. Hopefully this was a short but useful introduction to Muharram and Ashura. Hopefully this is useful for people who are who might want to use this as an educational resource, uh, for people who don't know what Muharram and Ashura is, and hopefully also for uh, the Sunni population to understand this uh, event a little bit better, to be become more conscientious of it, to hopefully see Muharram and Ashura as, a, as something that Sunnis and Shias can agree on, come together and agree on this memory. I think that that would be something quite beautiful. That's it for today. Let me know what your thoughts are about this. Hopefully this was a useful podcast. I will check in with all of you when season four starts in a few weeks. You can hit me up on social media at A-A-O-L-O-M-I, both on Instagram and on Twitter. Let me know your thoughts, any feedback that you have, um, or you can use the hashtag Head on History. Thanks for tuning in, and remember, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds.